warm welcome to Afternoons with me, Bill Arnold. Thank you for being with me again for hour two. If you just uh, joined me, had a great first hour and uh, had a fun conversation with my friend Patrick Albanese and then Eric Davis, pastor from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And now I've got an entire hour with Dr. Michael Heiser. So that's going to be fun because you know when Michael comes on, you get your tough questions ready and you send them my way. So let me know what they are. Uh, 877-933-2484. You can call and talk directly to uh, Dr. Heiser today on the show, or you can send me a text. Either way is good. 877-933-2484. I think I said that number about 600 times last week, but I did it joyfully because we had such an amazing fall share. Thank you so much to everyone who said, yeah, I'm on board. I'll help. I want to be part of that ministry. I want to be partnering along with you. And it just means the world to us. So thank you so much. Your generosity is extravagant. And I'm not, I'll never get tired of saying thank you. So thank you, thank you. Um, I'm looking at Romans chapter 5 in verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's verses one and two. Let me take 60 seconds and bring on Dr. Heiser. Dr. Michael Heiser is my guest. He's the academic editor for Lagos Bible Software. I hope I said that right. Logos, Lagos. What is the proper pronunciation, Michael? Well, you'll hear both. Okay, good. I don't feel so bad. Logos or Logos. Yeah, (laughs) that won't feel so bad. And, of course, about Bible Study Magazine and Faith Life Study Bible. And, of course, you're the co-editor of the Old Testament Greek Pseudepigrapha. Yeah, with... otherwise known as the stupid pig <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I rehearsed that uh, so I could say it today. And you got your PhD in Hebrew Bible, um, and you just, uh, you're a smart guy. I'm just going to make it easy on myself. Well, you know, we, uh, you know, the, the Lord called me to prepare in lots of arcane things through a long, long process. So we use what uh, what hopefully is under the hood. Yes. And some of the books that we have, that I've loved and we've chatted about is The Unseen Realm and Angels, The Bible Unfiltered. We've got another interesting book out now called The World Turned Upside Down, Finding the Gospel in Stranger mm-hmm. Things. Now, if you haven't heard about uh, Stranger Things, it's a, it's a Netflix hit show, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's, it's a... I would I would say the word phenomenon is appropriate. <laughs> okay. For now the let show, me let me just give point. the listeners a little bit of a if you don't don't know about the show, within four days of seasons three's release, forty million households had started it, and over eighteen mm-hmm. million had finished all eight hours of episodes, um, like in like in a very short amount of time. Yeah, yeah, probably just eight hours. watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, binge watching it. Yeah. So well, it took us twenty four hours. So we. Okay. I don't know if that's a lack of dedication. Yeah. <laughs> so tell yeah, the listeners about. Over a second day. Tell the listeners about Stranger Things, what it's about, and then your book, your response to it. Yeah. Well, the 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 idea for this book came from the the folks at Lexum because they knew. You know, they they knew two things that were to them pretty obvious. Um, one was I had written a lot on spiritual beings and the spiritual world. You know, books like Unseen Realm and Supernatural and Angels. And then uh, there's one that's coming out in March on demons. So they knew this was kind of my thing uh, as an academic. But I also had written a lot for the popular audience, and they knew I was a fan of the show. Okay, so. I, I jumped at I thought it was a great idea and it was actually really easy to write <laughs> because even though this was like, you know, a sort of a venture into pop culture, I mean I've I've written a couple novels, you know, I I've written a hundred articles for Bible study magazine, which are pitched at the average person, not the scholar or somebody going out and getting degrees and all that. But the reason it was easy was I had just self-published something through my my nonprofit called What Does God Want? And it, it's a book for seekers and new believers. And it tells the gospel, you know, what we in, in, in scholar land call salvation history through story. Okay, the first third of that little book presents the, the story of salvation as a story because that's what the Bible does. And so what I actually did was I thought, hey, I'm going to take the first third of that book gospel is story. What does God really want? God wants a family and he wants partners. So there's identity, who we are, and our mission. Okay, this is what God really wants. This is what the whole Bible's about, those two simple things. And I'm going to take that story as the Bible tells it with all of its ups and downs and all of its supernatural and human rebellions and all of its estrangement from God and its misery and you know, the fact that we can't fix ourselves, you know, and we, and we try and we just compound our situation. We're mortal. We're going to die. We, we need external supernatural intervention to heal this mess that we're in and that our world is. Mm-hmm. And I, I just knew instantly that that is going to map over really easily to Stranger Things, because frankly, and I don't think the, the people who produce Stranger Things did any of this intentionally, they're not Christians, but it's excellent storytelling and it tracks on all those themes. It really does a great job of displaying the human condition the chaos that self-destruction creates, the, just the loneliness. Every character has attachment issues. Um, you know, every character has, again, tried to fix themselves or, or fix somebody else, and they can't do it. And, and the story really boils down to one particular character who is the Stranger Things version of a power from beyond or a power that's not normal you know, what their version of supernatural power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that character, Eleven, <clears throat> is the most unlikely person to be that person that you could imagine. So, you know, 11-year-old girl, you know, 10, 11 in the show. She's she's a poster child for neglect and intentional abuse. Uh, but, she, you know, everything sort of just revolves around and centers on her ultimately. 
and it's it's a great portrayal of Jesus. I mean, there there are people, there are Christians who've commented on Stranger Things, and they they'll pick out one or two things that, that Eleven is very clearly a Christ figure, but but it's so much beyond that. It's so much deeper uh, than that. Um, it just it plays every string in the story, so it was easy to write. Mm-hmm. And, and my hope is that fans of the show, whether they're believers or not, will be able to identify with the show as they read this book and see how the show is a mirror reflection of story <clears throat> story elements in salvation history uh, that, that just explain what God really wants uh, in, in the world and, and for all of us, what God really wants is us. Michael, uh, remind me again of that other book you were talking about, that self-published book, and how do I get my mitts what, on it? What does What does God want? It's on Amazon. Uh, I self-published it because I wanted to to maintain control of the content for my nonprofit because I want to have it translated in, into as many languages as possible. Uh, I, I I have translation rights to Supernatural, you know, the the little uh, version of the, the the light version of Unseen Realm, and that. My nonprofit has put that into 25 languages. Nice. And it, we, we post them online for free. So the, our problem is getting people to realize they're there and begging people to steal the content. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, the, we have the opposite problem of a software company, you know, just where you want to protect your, your content. Well, I, I want those two books on every phone. I want it on every flash drive. I want it on every computer because it's just – it's the biblical story. It's biblical theology – that's just Genesis to Revelation, both for the average person in church that doesn't really get to hear the meta narrative. We hear lots of pieces of it, but it's it's often disconnected. We've talked about that on your show before. Mm-hmm. But then for new believers, um, just answering the simple question: What does God want? Excellent. So that's why I'd. Yeah. All right, Michael, let me take a little break. Uh, Lots of questions and lots more to talk about. Dr. Michael Heiser is my guest. We'll take a very short break and be back. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Michael Heiser is my guest, and uh, we are chatting about the new book that he's come out with, and it is uh, sounds like a fascinating read. If you especially are a big fan of Stranger Things, which is on Netflix, it's their hit show, so it's called The World Turned Upside Down, Finding the Gospel in Stranger Things, and if you like that show, and maybe you're one of the uh, 40 million that have already downloaded and watched uh, season three, you're going to have uh, some great spiritual insights for having discussions with your friends. So it's always good to know how to take everyday things and apply the gospel and have uh, smart conversations. So, uh, Michael, uh, remind me again how people can get to your website and get some of this uh, great information you're making available. It's drmsh.com. Do I have that right? Correct. Dr. Yep, that is the homepage. drmsh.com. And then right. there's all and kinds that'll of that'll take you to, oh yeah, podcasts, YouTube channel. You know, I, I do a YouTube channel that's called Fringe Pop 321, where we 
try to inject some sanity and also a, a high view of scripture and really primary sources and, and Jesus uh, to a fringe world, you know, people who believe fringe things uh, that you'll find on YouTube and Google and out there in the, the wild world of the internet mm-hmm. and the history channel. <laughs> right. <laughs> well. Right. But uh, I mean, they'll find that all the books, you know, it, that's the nerve center, drmsh.com. Awesome. Okay. Um, I've got a couple of listener questions. Can I throw them at you? Sure. Yeah. Um, how are we people in the image of God? If God created us in his image, what, what about us yeah. are in his image? Yeah, the image of God is not a thing put into us or a quality uh, that we have that, that God gives us. The image of God is actually a status. Uh, I, I talk a lot about this in Unseen Realm and, of course, Supernatural, and even a little bit, you know, in, in What Does God Want? And that is we humans were created to image God. Try to think of it as a verb. And you get the idea. We represent God. We are his proxies uh, in, in this world I mean, on earth, just as, you know, the heavenly host are his proxies in the spiritual world. We represent God. We partner with God to do the things that God wants to be done. Now, the fall messes with that. And so salvation history is about God bringing us back into his family and renewing uh, this partnership. I mean, all humans, you know, whether they're believers or not, are are imagers. That that is their intended end point, their intended destiny. And I think people need to hear that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that there's a purpose, you know, for, the, for for their life, you know, for why they're here. And and they can't really live it out unless they are redeemed, unless they are brought back into the family. And then they'll be able to fulfill their their true purpose in life, you know, to to partner with God and and make the rest of the world Edenic. That was the original mandate to Adam and Eve. And so the image of God is really a concept of representation. You know, we we bear the name of God where we go. This is why Jesus is referred to as the image, the express image of God. That's why we're supposed to imitate Jesus. When we imitate Jesus, we image God. I mean, there are a number of passages uh, in the in both Testaments that really get this point across. And it's, it's a really foundational one. Mm-hmm. Another question came in from uh, our friend Terry, who said, John the Baptist called the people of Israel to repent and be baptized. Mark 1, 4 says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus insist on being baptized by John? He was sinless and had nothing to repent. Yeah, he, he did that to validate John's message. I mean, if, if he had not done that, I mean, think about what Jesus, you know, says to him, you know, we're, we're going to do this to fulfill all righteousness and so on and so forth. If, if he doesn't do it, he pits himself against John and invalidates John's message. And, and the scripture is very clear that John is the forerunner to the Messiah. Well, if he's not, if, if he's invalidated, then that, of course, is actually going to bring a question on Jesus. <laughs> like, if we couldn't trust this guy, well, then who's this second guy, you know? <laughs> so, you know, they... They're they're working together. Jesus does this to validate uh, John's you know me- message and ministry, because John also says at the event that this is the Lamb of God. Again, if 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 they're not in concert, you know, John, what John's really really preaching is the the the, the kingdom of God and what what we sort of kind of know as Christians, and I and I think it's fair to say what what 
you know, what Jews kind of know, knew or should have known, we were, we're kind of in the same bucket here, is that the kingdom of God originally, even in the Old Testament, is supposed to include everyone, Gentiles. But that isn't the way everybody's behaving. So not only do you think about what the situation when Jesus shows up and when John shows up for that matter, we think that the exile is over because the two two nations, or Judah, you know, and you know, and the remnants, you know, came back. But that isn't the case because the the Old Testament prophets talk about the reunification of all twelve tribes, and that never happened. There's still ten tribes, you know, that are scattered abroad, and so they have this still have this sense of exile, uh, you know, a sort of un, under judgment. And Jesus comes and, and he's like, look. We're, we're, this this is why he quotes Isaiah 61 when he goes to Nazareth for his first sermon. This is the year of Jubilee. You know, this this day, all of this is going to be fulfilled in your own hearing. You know, the, the Messiah is here. We are here to bind up and heal, you know, Israel, to, to release the captives. And also, that this is why Jesus goes to Gentile territories, too, to communicate the message that the original kingdom was just humans. It wasn't Jew and non-Jew. That, mm-hmm. that's, that's something that arose because of rebellions and various falls of both humans and, and supernatural beings in the biblical story. It created that situation. So, you know, Jesus is there for, for everything. So John is preaching this message of the kingdom. And that means you need to stop aligning yourself with this one, this, this thing you've been following, or, or again, you know, re- release yourself, you know, from this bondage that, that you're in and, you know, rightly so, and come over to, the new kingdom, the promise of, of the spirit, you know, all these things that are wrapped up with the kingdom but in both the old and the new testament, the new covenant and all that. You know, and, and again, Jesus is the key to all of that. So they're acting in concert. They're not in any adversarial relationship. And so to refuse the baptism of John would have just undermined the cohesiveness of the whole plan. And wasn't there a, a lot of uh, baptismal and ceremonial washings that took place before you entered ministry, wasn't this a, a natural thing Jesus would have done? Yeah, there, there would have been you know, some washings. It, it depends on which, which things you, know, you're, you're, you sort of are tracking on when, when we think about this question, mm-hmm. because washing doesn't necessarily suggest sinfulness. You know, you go back in Leviticus, they would do various washings to, to be ceremonially, ceremonially pure. You know, ceremonial ritual impurity is not the same thing in, in Old Testament law, in Levitical law, as moral impurity. Um, you know, so, yeah, they did that. And so the act itself doesn't necessarily denote any kind of sinfulness, but it, it denotes a a purification in the sense that now I am ready to occupy sacred space. Mm-hmm. You know, and when, when you get into sacred space, you know, that, that you, you have proximity to God, you know, of course, again, if Jesus refuses to do these sorts of things, <clears throat> you know, then he's pitting himself against sacred space, against this idea. So the idea itself doesn't have anything, you know, again, to do with, with sin per se, but it often has to do with a, a sanctified status. Uh, and since we're sort of going from, you know, one kingdom, you know, one, you know, set of ideas, the, the, the present age to the new, you know, age, the age of the kingdom, you know, you have this transition, this sort of rite of passage, you know, that's wrapped up with it, too. Mm-hmm. If you have a question for Dr. Heiser, let us know what it is. You can call and speak on the show, or you can send me a text, 877-933-2484. We just have a couple minutes, Michael, before the break. 
And let's talk about, uh, I heard a, my pastor say 25 years ago that faith is a decision-making process based on the Word of God, regardless of your feelings. Um, and I don't know how that resonates with you, but, you know, I have a, a listener that uh, got saved, but she she always struggles with needing to feel reassured that she's mm-hmm. a believer. Um you know, she has a hard time resting in God's word about the truth that's in her. What, yeah. would you, what would you say about that regarding emotions? Well, I, <clears throat> I, I think that, that what you just articulated is, is quite true. I don't know about the, the completeness of it, but it, it's certainly true. And a, a negative way to, to say that is stop lying to yourself. Stop believing in lies. You know, the faith and reason are not incompatible. Uh, I, I think, you know, if we see the logic of the gospel, which is actually really simple, you're estranged from God, so how in the world would you ever expect to fix that problem yourself? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's as simple as that. You know, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. So he already, before we even had a thought, an inkling of caring about what God thought about us. You know, it just, you know, Paul even, I mean, Paul you know, had Christians killed, you know, before we had, we had any, any inclination at all to care. God knew that. Jesus yeah. knew that. Can, and, and, and he died for us. Yeah. Michael, could we kind of hit pause on that thought sure. and then bring it back because we have to go to a hard break right now, but I would love to uh, continue that. Dr. Michael Heiser is my guest. If you have a question, it can be as hard as you want it to be, let us know what it is. You can call and speak to us, talk to Michael directly, or you can send me a text, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be back in 90 seconds. back to the show. Dr. Michael Heiser is my guest. He's a theologian and author. A lot of credits on his behind his name. Awfully glad to uh, get him on the show whenever I can. He's written a number of great books, The Unseen Realm, Angels, The Bible Unfiltered. He's also written a new book on the crazy hit show on Netflix called Stranger Things. Uh, so, But we're opening up the phone lines for anyone who's got uh, questions. I know this is Kind of a crazy question, uh, Michael, but in uh, Genesis, in chapter, I think it's chapter 3, um, the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. What were snakes doing before they were crawling on their belly? Because you know that that kind of that keeps that stuff keeps me up at night. Because like if squirrels yeah, is kind of a if squirrels weren't afraid of me, I'm, I'm, I'd I'm never leave the house. Yeah, I'm wondering if this is a trick question for me because I I, I don't um, you know I don't I don't believe that Genesis three is a zoology lesson, uh, and we know this from the New Testament. We know that the the, the real villain in, in Genesis three is 
you know, the figure we call Satan or the devil, the New Testament call, you know, uses those terms, those names later. We know this is a divine being and ancient people would have been reading the story and they know animals don't talk and all that sort of thing. When that, ha when that happens in stories, you know that the, the gods or God or something, something supernatural must be going on here. And so I, I don't think it's a it's designed to teach us anything about snakes, you know, before or after or whatever. Okay. All right. Uh, I, I, I take I take the, the the wording there as as metaphorical, and what it means is that you have a divine being here, Allah, Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, which talks you know uses the same rebellion story as a backdrop, and you have a divine being that says, "I will be like the Most High." I want to be the one who who makes the decisions. Namely, I'm opposed to this decision to let these, you know, humans, these lesser, you know, beings, rule this place. And so, you know, he he puts himself into the into the authority position, the decision making authority position, which is why he gets described as wanting to be like the Most High in Isaiah. And God says, well, instead of being the Most High, I have a different idea. You're going to be lower than the animals. Okay, mm. you're going to be more cursed you know, than any of these. And, and, and the, the idea of, you know, eating dirt and, you know, putting them, putting really the, the serpent figure, you know, as, as how he appears to Eve below the hooves of animals is about as low as you can go. Mm -hmm. and, and as I talk about an unseen realm, the, the word for earth, Eretz, is also used in Hebrew for the underworld. This is where you get the association of the first rebel with the underworld, the realm of the dead. Okay. Because as a result of his deed, and his deception and Adam and Eve's fall, everyone dies now. The world is, is plunged into, into mortality and death. And Eden is no more. Um, you know, so, so I, I take it as a, a spiritual language, you know, theological language, if you will, uh, aimed at this particular entity and putting him in his place and putting him beneath the things that he wanted to rule. Appreciate that answer very much, Michael. All right, here's kind of a ultimate softball question for you. Um, Bill, ask your guest what Bible software program he likes and what he would recommend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, softball question. There's the ultimate yeah, softball I, question right there. Yeah, I, I do. I do recommend Logos. Um, you know, if, especially if you're, you know. Bible software companies, the, the you know, the, there's two main ones right now, um, and they all have the same sort of high end, you know, high faluting, you know, sort of scholarly kind of things. And if you can read and work in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, you know, you can do fine, you know, with with any of them. But if you're, you know, someone who can't do that, and you want something really easy, just drop dead easy, and you want to be able to search in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic through English, there is only one option. And that is Logos. Logos mm -hmm. has things in it, namely the reverse interlinears that allow you, even if you don't even know the alphabet, you can actually run searches on Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic words wow. through your English translation without even knowing it. Mm -hmm. You know, and we we deliberately designed it to do that. Yeah. So logos dot com. Mm -hmm. That the website to go check That's it perfect. out. Yeah. All right. Let's switch uh, bases, Michael, to angelology. How about that fancy word? Uh, did you did you want to go back to uh, the the gospel question? Oh yes, I did actually. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm glad to remind you because I think this is really an important question. You know, we I don't know this person you're referring to, but I I know lots of people, lots of Christians who 
they hear the gospel, they comprehend it, they understand it. I can't save myself. You know, John 3.16, Romans 5.8. But then they're plagued by guilt. They're plagued by memories or things, you know, s- struggle with sin that they have. And then they seem to sort of get the, the deeply flawed impression that God may not like me as much now as he did that day that I understood the gospel and embraced it. Okay, that's a lie, and you need to stop believing in lies. Okay, God knew you at your worst <laughs> before you had any interest in him. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that the gospel goes into action. You know, guilt really plagues uh, a lot of Christians, and it's really unfortunate. And this is the thing that separates the gospel from everything else, every other religion, every, every, you know, everything else either denies you have a sin problem, which is kind of blatantly, you know, baloney, or it insists that you perform certain things, certain rituals, certain behaviors, so that you can somehow fix yourself, or that God will somehow look at your effort and be happy. Okay, God loved you before you even thought about doing any of that. <laughs> That's the so point true. of those passages. Yeah. The gospel is the only system or religion, whatever you want to call it. It's the only one that is honest with you, that oh. you cannot fix yourself. And so God is going to fix you for you. And the way that that happens is you trust him. You trust him that the solution is not in yourself. It's in the work of Jesus. And you let it there. You know, that you, you can't be perfect anyway. That which, you know, can't be obtained by moral perfection, because none of us can be morally perfect. We can't be like God, you know, holy. If it can't be obtained by moral perfection, it can't be lost by moral imperfection. Mm. Okay, these are these are just fundamental truths that we need to remind ourselves of because, you know, we, we're sensitive. We're, we're, we, we feel guilt, you know, all this stuff. But we need to stop believing lies and start remembering the fundamental truths of what the gospel is and what it offers. If I could send you a coupon for a steak dinner right now, I would. Because that's like, <laughs> that's like the answer of the day. That's an outstanding it's, it's, answer. What, what, what does God want? I mean, uh, this is why, partly, partly why I wrote the book. Because, you know, I went through this struggle, too. Okay. You know, as a believer. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I became a believer when I was a, a teenager. And, and I think everybody goes through this where... You, you sort of descend into this weird little bit of insanity where now, yeah, I, I realize that, you know, Christ died for me while I was yet a sinner. But now I have to do things to keep God happy. And, and we realize that, well, what was God's disposition before you heard and accept the gospel? Oh, that's right. He loved us. Right. So we don't have to keep God happy. God's always, you know, he's always loved us. Yeah, these are simple things, but they're easy to forget. Thank you. It's beautiful. All right, I appreciate uh, the additional uh, insight on that question. Let's talk about uh, supernatural experiences. Is it okay for someone to pray that they may have one? I mean, you talk about angels, you talk about um, supernatural experiences. And there's a lot of people that go, ah, it never happened to me, and I don't really anticipate it happening to me. But can you intentionally pray and ask for one? Or is that well, a little I, wacky? Well, I think, well, I, I don't know if I'd use the word wacky. I, I would want to know why do you want one? 
Um, for do you, proof, do you, for signs, for... Yeah, boy, see, there you, you really, go. <laughs> you want one because of a lack of faith <laughs> is, well, is the more blunt way of well, saying Not that. lack of faith, maybe as much as I want to go deeper. I want to go do a deeper dive into my spiritual experience. And if I had a supernatural experience, you know, that might be kind of fun. Right. Well, if God, God isn't a, and, and I'm not saying that if you have a person in mind, I'm not saying they're thinking this, but God isn't a vending machine or uh, an entertainment box or you mm-hmm. know, an Xbox. You know, he's, he doesn't do these things for your entertainment. Now, if, if God knows that you need, you know, something like if it's legit and, and God would know if it's legit or not, you know, there may be something like that. I, I mean, I would not pray and solicit a, a, a supernatural experience. And, and, and I, I would pray something like, you know, Lord, you know, you know where I'm at right now, you know, I'm, I'm really doubting this or down in the, you know, the, in the doldrums about mm-hmm. this or that. And whatever means that, that, that you, you know, know would be best for me, you know, just, you know, deal with me and, and help me to be, you know, spiritually alert, you know, so that I see it you know, okay. when it happens. I can discern it, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. Because honestly, most of the time God works, it is not in the spectacular. See, that's when we think God's busy, mm-hmm. when something crazy happens. <laughs> but there's this thing throughout the history of throughout the history of the biblical story and frankly throughout the history of the world and life called providence. See, when when this is why I love movies like Signs and It's a Wonderful Life and, and things like this, because you you because of those films, they're they're good illustrations of how if you can look back on your life, you see that your life is a concatenation of decisions that, you know, I could have chosen A, but I chose B or some, this time I chose A and this, you know, you, you, your life is a concatenation of these decisions. And what we have to realize is that God was in the entire process. You know, it's the unseen hand that is working through other people, sometimes through something supernatural that we may not even know or detect. Yeah. You You know, you, you can have a supernatural reason why a per- person was in a particular time and place to meet you and say that one word that turned your life around. Okay, you know, God is the one who is tasked by himself with making all that happen. We're not. <laughs> okay, that's above our pay grade. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is be open and obedient and trust that God will do what is necessary to help us. Yeah. And then give us eyes to see when, when these things are coming together and help us to believe. Help us to believe that it wasn't just chance. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay, that there's something intentional here. He seems to often work in non-obvious ways, and I really wished I knew what concatenation meant. So that's kind of where I'm at right a, now. A, assembly. <laughs> Collection. <laughs> Chain. Yeah. All right, here's another question linked together. from a yeah. uh, smart listener. How do Old Testament priests and Levites relate to the pastor of today? Why did they not receive an inheritance of land? Does that mean today's pastor should not own a home, or is that why some churches provide a parsonage? Well, in the first part about not owning a home, uh, there is no you know, mandate in the New Testament, obviously, about not owning a home. Right. And I would say that, no, that that part of the portrait of Levites and, and priests really has nothing to do with the pastor today because we're not a theocracy. You know, we are an assemblage of believer priests. 
you know, the, the, the Bible calls every, every believer a priest, you know, with the, the temple imagery, you know, about how we're stones and Christ is the cornerstone and all this kind of stuff. It's that we, and Paul even says this explicitly, we, you, plural, are the temple of the living God. Okay, we are the place where the glory of God, the Spirit of God, the presence of God in the Old Testament inhabits today. We don't need, you know, that the, the sort of priestly thinking. We don't need our, ourselves purified for sacred space post-Jesus because Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus accomplished that. We have direct access to the Father at any time. So there, there are significant disconnections because of Jesus with the Old Testament priesthood. Jesus is our priest on our behalf, and, he, and it's eternal. And, he, and when we are joined to him, think about these biblical phrases, we're in Christ, we're joined to Christ. You know, When that happens, we, we become that, we have that status as well. So in that sense, you know, we're not a theocracy anymore. We're the church, we're the supernatural, you know, temple of God, the body of Christ, so on and so forth. Now, the, the, the flip side of that, the other part of it was something about um, not owning the home. But what was the other part of the question? Does that mean uh, today's pastor should not own a home, or is that why oh, some churches provide a parsonage? Oh, the, pars yeah, the parsonage. Yeah. In, in tradition, in tradition, you know, just Western religious tradition, because it's hooked into the Bible. Yeah, I mean, that that is part of the thinking uh, it's also part of the thinking, like with tax exemption and whatnot. You know, the this looking at New Testament um, leaders, spiritual leaders, and then drawing, you know, what what in effect is a political social, you know, analogy for the sake of parsonage or taxation and things like this. So there are things in our culture like that. Uh, the, the the question for me as a as a biblical scholar is is any of that biblical biblically mandated? The answer to that is no, but you you can see it reflected in in uh, American and Western tradition. Mm -hmm. We're having a concatenation with Dr. Michael Heiser, and if you want to be part of that, um, let us Hopefully know. Hopefully it won't turn into a cacophony. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> there let, <you> us, go. <laughs> let us know what your question is. You can call us or text us 877-933-2484. Make it tough questions because Michael can answer them. Be right back. Dr. Michael Heiser is my guest, and he's written a whole bunch of books, The Unseen Realm, Angels, Bible Unfiltered. His new book is The World Turned Upside Down, Finding the Gospel in Stranger Things, which is a monster Netflix hit show. And we're just chatting about a little bit of anything and everything. So, Michael, if God so loved the world, uh, why did he create the nation of Israel and says, these are my people? The questioner needs to read Unseen Realm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, right. that's, no the, the, that's the short answer, the, the, the cheating answer. The, the, the better answer is Israel was created in response to the third of three uh, rebellions that occur in Genesis 1 through 11, specifically the disinheritance of the nations, uh, what God punished them at Babel and assigned them to the sons of God, you know, a lot of them to the sons of God. This is Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 32, 
again, I cover all these passages in Unseen Realm and in Supernatural, you know, the light version. But since God essentially forsook humanity, had enough of them, because they were, even after the flood, they were refusing to do what he wanted done in Eden. This is why after you know, when Noah gets off the ark, God repeats the Edenic command, you know, be fruitful and multiply, overspread the earth. And so what do they do? They congregated Babel. They start building a ziggurat, which is part of a temple complex. And you would build one of those to bring the deity to you and locate it so you can barter with it. God says, that's not really what we had in mind here. And so here we are again after the flood. If you don't want me to be your God, fine. I'm going to split you up into nations according to the number of the sons of God. It's Deuteronomy 32.8. And I recommend using ESV, NLT, or NRSV for that because it incorporates the Dead Sea Scrolls reading. And that's what it says. He allots the nations according to the number of the sons of God. So there's God. And now he has no people anymore because he's punishing humanity. So what does God do? In the very next breath, right after Babel, in the biblical story, he says, you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to go to Or of the Chaldees, and I'm going to pick this one guy out. And frankly, he's perfect. Him and his wife are perfect because he's really old and she can't have children. So she's just like the perfect one because I'm going to raise up a new family through them. And she's perfect because there's going to be, there's going to have to be a supernatural origin. I'm going to kickstart the plan again. I'm not giving up on the original plan to have a family and have, you know, Eden, the whole world transformed into Eden. I'm not going to give up on that. I'm going to start anew. I'm going to have a new people through this couple. And it's going to be through them because when God does that, he says to the, to the man, Abraham, he says, now it's going to be through you and your seed, your offspring, that all of these other nations will be blessed. Ultimately, God will return to the nations and bring them back into the fold, into the family through this one. But the nation of Israel is where God kickstarts the plan again after punishing humanity, after divorcing them. Again, not permanently, but with the intention to bring them back into the fold. So they are a kickstart. They're a reset button mm -hmm. uh, for God's original plan. Great, uh, great answer, Michael. I just had a uh, a listener say, "I am a fan and listen to hours of Dr. Heiser on YouTube." <laughs> How about that? So, someone that deserves some kind of medal. I'll send, I'll send her the <laughs> steak dinner. Yeah, there you, you go. You just got your steak dinner taken away, and there she said, go. "Recently, I listened to options for eschatology, timing, etc., and he never tipped his hand to his view." <laughs> That's artful. Nice work. Well, my, my view is one born of apathy. Uh, I'll say this. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's my superpower, apathy. Okay. Uh, in other words, I don't care. You know, all of the eschatological, the end times systems cheat. Um, they cheat because they have to. And it's okay if we acknowledge that. In other words, none of the systems are self-evident from the Bible. This is why we have all the systems. They all look beautiful and wonderful until you look at the places where they don't quite work well. And those become, quote unquote, problem passages. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, they all have problems, you know, it, it, because they're all driven by presumptions that we bring to the text. For example, should I read the book of Revelation as a linear chronology or as a series of cyclical events? There's no instruction manual behind the book of Revelation that tells you which one to pick. You just pick one. 
and then you be warmed and filled because one decision is going to lead you to one system of end times thinking and the other decision will lead you to an altogether different one. And that's okay. You know, God doesn't reveal everything in scripture with equal clarity. And by the way, just between you, me and your your vast audience here, <laughs> that ought to indicate the things that God cares about more versus less. Okay, God was perfectly capable of giving us greater clarity on the things that really mattered. But he doesn't give us equal clarity on all, all things. And, but, you know, that's okay. It's okay. So do the best you can. Make interpretive presumptions. We all have to do that. And then just live with the results and be charitable to somebody else who holds a different view because hopefully you both understand, well, the reason I'm over there and you're here is because of decisions we made before we even got started on thinking about end times. Neither of our positions are self-evident in the text. We're just doing the best we can. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say, I don't care. Pick the one you like. Think about the other ones. Realize why you're landing where you land. Maybe you'll change at some point. Maybe you never will. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Question. Um, I know the scripture, uh, Jesus says we will not be given in marriage in heaven, but we will get to spend time with our earthly spouse once we are in the heaven new earth. Yeah, I, I think that the point of, of that kind of language is that we no longer need to perpetuate the species. We are we have put on, as Paul says, immortality. Uh, and so that, you know, the, the procreative sexual relationship, you know, however you want to frame that, is is minimized or really unnecessary at that point. I know that that bothers some people because in this life it's like, oh, there's nothing better than that. Well, well, yeah, in this life, okay, I'll 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 surrender that point to you, but then I'll ask you, well, what about the life to come? Because Paul says that no one, you know, I hath not seen or ear heard, you know, the, the, the things that await us in that life. So I'm willing to bet you probably won't give it too much thought mm-hmm. <laughs> on the other side. I think you're going to be overwhelmed with, you know, what a global Eden with the Lord present does for you. All right, we're going to try this. This We've got a minute and 40 seconds left, Michael, and I've got a caller on the line. And unfortunately, uh, I can't bring him on because we don't have enough time. But I think the question about is revelation as allegory. Um, a pastor said revelations could be allegorical, indicating maybe it's not true. Well, th- there, there's a disconnect. Allegory doesn't mean something is not true. It means that, that the meaning of that thing is is not what you would sort of default to in a literal understanding. For instance, Revelation 21.1, there is no sea. There's no more sea. Does that mean in the new heaven and new earth there's no water, or at least no salt water? I mean, that's literal thinking. No. We have to realize that sea throughout Scripture, from Genesis 1 all the way to the end, here we're at Revelation 21, is a metaphor for things untamed and chaotic and fearful. Mm. People, people don't live in water because if you tried, you'd die. All right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, this is this is why we have sea creatures that are part of you know, like Psalm seventy four, God slaying the dragon when he brings creation order. These are metaphors and symbols to denote that God brings order out of chaos. He manages it and yeah. controls it, and in the end, 
there is no more sea. There's yeah. no more chaos to contend with. Michael, you're a delight. Oh, boy, I enjoy having you on. Thank you so much for doing the show. Yep, you're, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. Yeah, Dr. Michael Heiser has been my guest. That wraps up our show. Thank you so much for listening, supporting Faith Radio. We sure had a blast last week with Paul Scherer. Thanks for everything. Have a good night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow.